Welcome back, friends. I am so excited today to be with my dear friend, Megan Baldwin. I feel very honored to call you a dear friend. Uh, we have not been in each other's lives very long. No, and we haven't. What is so cool about this journey and all this work that we do is when you meet humans, you connect in a way that is deeper really quickly. And I love that about our story. And so Megan and I met at the Trauma-Informed Educator Network uh, conference a year ago. Almost. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. yeah. Next week, like almost a year. Yeah. Yeah. Right at a year ago. And I think our connection is based on our Western living. <laughs> Uh, Megan lives in Kansas and I am Wyoming, Colorado. And I think most of the people at the conference are like, what are those states? Where, where are you? We don't understand. Like we fly. Right. Over, right? Do we and need so, to put up a map. Maybe we need to put up a map. Yeah, I think so. And so uh, I do think that's just a piece where we just get culturally each other a little bit differently than everybody else around us. And so um, there's a million reasons I'm drawn to you, but I'm going to let you introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about who you are, what you do, all the good stuff. And then we'll, we'll chitty chat. Sure. So um, I am a mom and uh, to uh, two 20 somethings now, the youngest just turned 20 about a week ago. So that's exciting. Um, I'm a longtime public educator. So I've been in public education like 25 plus years. Um, I taught general ed and then I taught special ed and then I found myself kind of in a interesting spot of of, uh, creating a space for um, where our kids and our adults could in my school could come to regulate and so that was my past five years um I was with a very large school district for 18 years and I decided to make a change so I resigned that position and I'm moving on to a smaller school school district so I'm excited about that so that's my main gig that's the gig that pays the bills but my passionate gig is that I am a Balaviz X um, practitioner and trainer. So those of us that don't know what Balaviz X, so it start it stands for Balance Auditory Vision Exercises, and it's a um, series of exercises that have been a long time in creating, probably close to thirty years. Bill Hubert started working on those exercises, and we use sandbags and racquetballs, and we um, we have patterned, repetitive, rhythmic movement that you know some of the exercises are some of them that we started with 30 years ago but it's always changing and always evolving we're always learning something new and always trying something new it's classroom friendly it's school friendly um and yeah that's where like that's where my energy lies when I when I get into a gym with you know 30 people and we spend two days together and by the end of two days we're all in sync and um our bodies are all moving at the same speed and our nervous systems kind of attune and intertwine. That's where my real love falls. Yeah. So this is a hundred percent. One of the reasons I fell in love with you is because you are doing this work in a public education system. You're realizing that the structure of what we've always done in education doesn't work for all people. And right. That, exactly. And that we have to teach from a nervous system level. And one of the questions I get consistently from my audience and from the educators that I train and I talk about nervous system is like, how do we do that in the classroom? What do we do? Do we have time for this? How do you implement it? And your work is the answer. Like it's one of the answers, right? It is one of the answers. Yes. Yes. So just speak a little bit to that because 
Um, you have this beautiful way of articulating how pattern repetitive activities really belong in an educational setting. Right. So um, it's kind of interesting because like Bell of His X, when it was first created, when Bill first started working on it, he had two major backgrounds. And one background was he was a first grade teacher at the time. And his other background was in martial arts. And so he took kind of the the structure of martial arts and he was trying to figure out, okay, like how can I provide movement at that point? How can I provide movement to my students? And he started thinking about it. And what he did was he did some observations and he looked at his students and the students who were struggling academically were also the students who could not like um, walk on a balance beam or they couldn't stand on one foot or they couldn't like stand on a chair and jump off and land on two feet. He found that those were the same kinds of students. And, you know, 30 years ago, we weren't talking about you know, brain science, we were, and we weren't talking about nervous systems, but what he was really trying to do is he was trying to create that, he was trying to create more physicality in these kids so that they could function in life. And now, fast forward 30 years, now we have the brain science and the neuroscience to go with that that says pattern repetitive rhythmic movement helps to calm the limbic system or helps to um, calm that stress response system. So that's kind of the the lens we've been looking at it now through about the, oh, about 10 to five to 10 years is kind of where we've yeah. been going with that. So in a classroom, we have, you can use sandbags, you can use racquetballs. We always try to get a midline cross, whether it's front to back or side to side. We um, provide um, a way to move our feet and our hands together. We can do that in do individually we can do it in partners we can do it in small groups and the what people have to realize is that bow of his x is not based on having internal rhythm yourself it's not based on being athletic it is based on precise physical technique and once you learn the technique then the rhythm comes from the technique and the technique is simple enough that anyone can learn it so it makes bow of his x very accessible to classrooms because, you know, within two days of training, we can get those techniques, but then you can take those simple techniques and, and the very simple ones, teach them to volunteers or to paraprofessionals or to any other adults that you have in your classroom or in an elementary school setting, you might teach them to the older kids and the older kids work with the younger kids. It's just one of those things that is super accessible to everyone. So... Let me ask this question because I think it comes up a lot. Is this a strategy or a technique you use with kids when they're regulated, when they're dysregulated? If they're having a meltdown, do you say, hey, grab a bean bag? If they're, you know, their stress response system, I always say your stress response system is like a rubber band. The more stressed you are, the more stretched you are. Where do you use this in the stretching of the rubber bands? Right. I think that varies from kid to kid and human to human, because what we have to realize is that every we all have our own individual recipes for what regulates us. And so you have to know your kids and you have to know the people that you're working with. Um, it can be used if you're kind of on that edge of meltdown stage and you can still communicate with the with the person that you're working with. If you're to the point where your communication is gone, then this isn't a time to use Balabiz X. Yeah, but we um, it's really nice when we I liked it. I spent a lot of my career in the past 
10 years or so being very reactive in a, in a school setting. Like we were always reacting to behavior. And in Bellavis X is something that we can use on the front end. We can use it as a strategy to prevent dis, to prevent dysregulation. Yeah, love that. So one of the strategies that you've used is you have a room. And I want you to we talk do. about your room. If you're we did, that. yeah. We called and, it the reset and return room. Yep. Okay. Tell us um, all about Boy, it was, that was a long journey. Like that was five years. We, there, you know, there's hundreds of things we tried that didn't work. And then there's, you know, dozens of things we tried that did work. But we set that room up in the idea of Bruce Perry's regulate, relate, reason. So, um students would come in let's just say we had um a, an, an issue of dysregulation where we weren't able to catch it in time and the student became dysregulated so then they would come into the room and um if it's somebody we had seen before they already knew that we already knew the tools because we had they had explored and they had tried and they had decided which of these work for me is it the rocking chair is it the swing is it the tent is it the crash pad um, so we had already kind of made up that recipe for them. I always like them to get some kind of large body regulation, whether it's walking or rocking or swinging, something like that before we move into kind of a fine motor regulation, which is where they would, um, they would like get something for their fine motor, whether it's coloring or um, using fidgets or whatever. So that was the regulation part of that. Also remembering that we never left a child alone. We were always there for co-regulation. And sometimes that meant sitting with the child. Sometimes that meant backing off. It just, we had to always figure that out. Again, individual kids, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time, but in the end, you'll get the payoff. Yeah. And then, so then we would move after the child was regulated, then we would move to the reason or the, the, um, relate stage that stage we would move them to a, like a small table where we had games or maybe we were coloring together that's where we reestablished our communication between the adult and the child are we ready to problem solve this okay. and then we would get to the reason stage and we would mm -hmm. then be able to problem solve what happened who was affected and what do we need to do to make it right so that's just one example. We also had kids and sometimes adults that took regular scheduled breaks. So again, trying to get ahead of that behavior. Like if we know that, you know, we have a kiddo who regularly becomes, you know, has struggles from 1015 to 1025 because that's the beginning of math. Well, then how about we get ahead of that from at 1010 and then we can come regulate and then we can slide you in kind of after that transition piece has already taken place. Love that. There's so many parts of this that are fascinating to me. I am sure you have experienced this as well. So I'm just going to ask for your beautiful insight. How often do you think about emotional regulation during a work day at a school? Oh, like every 30 seconds, like yeah. every time you have an, inter these days, every time you have an interaction or you hear an interaction, you're thinking about what is the state of that person's nervous system, whether it is a child or an adult. And then after you think about these things for a while and you start to notice, like that's the biggest thing. I think people start to notice the states of, of other people's nervous systems. Then you start to predict it. 
And then you start to problem solve in your head, okay, what can I do or what needs to happen, you know, so that this adult can get what they need and this child can get what they need so that we don't damage, further damage any relationships that we have. Like that's my, that's something that always kicks into me is what do we need to know, do in this moment to preserve the integrity of the relationship between either these two adults or these two children or the children and the child and the adult as you do this work, you start to think about those things as you notice the regulation or emotional states of other people. Yeah, I love that. So we're going to have lots of members in our audience, some that are going to be doing this work like you and I have been doing this work for decades, for a very long time, others who are just very at the beginning of this journey. And so one of the questions I get a lot from people at the beginning of the journey is, how in the world does this impact learning. Like I, my job as an educator is to teach. I'm not, sure. here to play. I'm not here to parent. I'm not here to do all this. So talk to me in your own words, mm-hmm. expert, expert public educator sure. about how this sort of work regulation, emotional regulation, understanding those emotional dynamics really does impact the academic component that education yeah. Um, I think the first thing I have to do before, and I will answer that question, but the first thing I have to do is I have to recognize our public educators, and I have to recognize that the past three years have been like nothing we have ever um, experienced before, and I also want to recognize that we as educators are often, the system has conditioned us in a way that if we can just do things faster, if we can give them more content in a faster way to increase academics, that that is going to solve our problems. And that's a systematic issue. And I mean, I've talked to educators from all over the country, and I often get this very sort of similar thing, like, when am I going to have time to deal with regulation? Well, here's the deal, is that, you know, if our if our cortex, if we our core the learning takes place in our cortex, which is the you know highest level of our brain, and the rest of our brain has to be regulated and opened up in order for us to get there. And if we're not, if our if if we can't get to the cortex, we can talk and teach those kids all day long, and they're not going to get it. And and unfortunately, what that often end that often ends up is we end up with educators who are being blamed and shamed for their kids not getting the academic content, when in fact, it's the fact we need to spend time in that regulation piece in order to get to the cortex, which is where all of our academic learning takes place. And that's where we have to be able to get there in order to be able to stick. If we are not in a regulated state and we can't get to our cortex, whatever we're getting them is not going to stick. And then that frustrates us. And then that's, that's hard on us just a cycle. So Mm -hmm. there's so much, there's so much in what you're saying that's important to unpack. You know, I think educators are heroes and you just keep showing up because you love you're underpaid, you're exhausted. Many of you are working in environments that are not supported. And I just, I love that you're honoring that. And I want to acknowledge that as well, because you are heroes and Megan, I've had the privilege of knowing you over the last year and knowing how brutal it is. Like you have brutal days, right? You have it brutal, is brutal. brutal days. It can and be very brutal. It's and and I think that's such an important piece of this conversation because while we're here because we love kids and we want to do right by kids, this is also really important for adults. Mm-hmm. Very much and so. 
part of what's happened over the last three years is it's hard for us to get into our core tech Mm -hmm. because we're not regulated. Are you seeing that with your colleagues, with the the educators you talk across, you know, with across the United States? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, this is the first year that I've heard, you know, from colleagues who might, you know, they might come down and say, you know, what, Meg, like, I've never, I've never said that to kids ever. Or um, we're also finding a lot of not only are our educators struggling, but our educators like wider families and support systems are struggling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it might be that like our educators used, I mean, they might have a little bit of, you know, a disruption in like their immediate family, but they would often have these wide support systems. They might have aunts or uncles or friends. And it just seems like those wider net support systems are also struggling. Yeah. Yeah. Dysregulation, regulation, it's very systemic. It is. It absolutely is. Right. Yeah. And it's it very, is. I, I say a lot of things like, you know, what's regulating? Turn off the news. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that because it's, it, we are impacted by so much of the information that we're getting all the time. And it does impact these systems in these communities. So as you're thinking about your journey of 20 plus years in public education with this twist of really understanding regulation, really supporting kids and families, really supporting your colleagues, what are like the top three things you wish every person you, like if you could share anything that you've learned, what is it? What is the top? Anything that I've learned. Okay, so number one, might, number one might not be super popular, but I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, so number one is, uh, for educators in general, is that you have to know that you cannot self-care yourself out of these systematic things that are going on in our education system. Like where you are not going to self-care, you are not going to self-care your way out of the constant assessment protocols that keep coming your way. It's just, it's not going to happen. So, so a yoga class a week, walking, right. Work. Right. Exactly. You're exercising, getting the private, that is not going to solve the systemic issues of what we're doing. Got it. Correct. I maybe unpopular, but a very important thing to say. I know like, (laughs) oh man, super unpopular. Okay. So then, um, number two would be, um, doing some real work on your, your states, your nervous system, and really knowing what your triggers are, because we all have them. Like, what are those things that just send you over the edge? And it doesn't matter how small they are. Like, for me, it's um, people leaving random pieces of paper on my desk. Like, don't leave me a note, just send me an email. Like, that's my thing. Like, just don't do that anymore. Um, So understanding your nervous system, what are your triggers and what are the things if you feel like what are the sensations in your body that kick in and then also being able to say, you know what, right now I can't do this. 
I can't, I cannot, there's, I don't have what's my regulate, my, my system can't regulate with yours right now. And so I need to step out and have somebody step back in. So that's kind of a combo number two, like knowing your limits, know your limits, know what regulates yourself. I think I just want to say a couple of points about that. I find that the more we take adults down the journey of what's regulating, Uh they're naturally doing it in their life, right? I always give the example, I'm in the army. When I went into the army, I'd have to sleep in all these weird places. I need a heavy blanket to sleep. Now I take my blanket with me to the army. People Uh are like, are you bringing your blanket? Yes, I'm a grown woman with my blanket. Like I need (laughs) that, right? Like that is a regulation thing. I live part-time in Wyoming. It's super windy. In order for me to be happy here, I need a water feature of some sort. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like it has to offset. So once you know what it is that really provides that safety connection regulation, you just increase it, right? We dose it differently at different times in our life. I love, love, love that. And Mm -hmm. it's super easy to get curious about. Like to me, this is the, it's one of the cheapest. I always, I always, ask educators, how many of you spend money on bulletin boards? And they all raise their hand, right? And I'm like, regulation's actually cheaper. Like when you learn <laughs> what is is that you need, whether it's different smells, different lighting, right? work, like it really makes sense. So I love that you're saying that. And I really love that you're giving pre- people permission to say, I don't have the capacity to do this mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't mean I don't have the capacity ever. Right. It means I don't have the capacity right now. Yes. Yes. Okay. I just had to acknowledge that. So, okay. I can't wait. To awesome. All right. Three. So then number three, and this was one that I had never really thought about before, but once it was pointed out to me, it became very, very helpful. So creating for yourself some kind of ritual from transitioning from your work day to your home life. Yep. Um, I, what I used to think mine was was my drive home. I make a commute every day of about 40 minutes. And I used to think that that was my rich, my ritual, my ritual. That is not my ritual. Well, I mean, I still do it every day, but my ritual is, is when I walk in the house, I have to wash my hands. Oh, that like is the transition from being Mm -hmm. at work to being at home. And like, I thought to myself, well, and when my kids were babies, that's just what I did like for their health. But mm-hmm. now that I think about it and I, I tested it a couple of times, like, is that really a regulation strategy? And it absolutely is because if I walk into this house and somebody needs me for something like instantly, it, my nervous system just starts to get kind of itchy and kind of like prickly. And I'm just like, whoa, hold on. I got to go wash my hands. And then once I wash my hands, then I can make that transition and I can take on you know, like whatever is next. So that would be my third number one, my, my number three thing. I love that. And there's something about the washing of like, I'm washing away this piece mm-hmm. and present and ready for what this piece needs to give me. Right. Such, such good stuff in there, Megan. I, appreciate you for so many reasons. Um, one of my favorite things about you is your authenticity and your candor. You you. have the ability to make humans feel safe and you genuinely show up and you're one of the funniest people I know. (laughs) And so we, I really want to say that because there's a few things that come together. Um, I always tell people we don't feel safe with people until we play with people Mm -hmm. and you are a player like in the best ways you love to play and you create that safety and 
you just model this in a way that is super helpful. And I'm really excited about your new adventure because you're going to be in an, in a setting where administratively all of this stuff is built in, right? Yes. Yes. I'm super excited about that. I'm making a transition into a smaller elementary school, um, with a principal who I've known for some time and, um, the culture, like the building, the culture of the folks that work in that building, um, is just, it's amazing. Like when I officially announced that I was coming their way, I, I got text messages from these people that I don't even know for probably two weeks straight, just like welcoming me to the building. Um, and I think that that is going to be a very refreshing start. Um, I'm going to be doing much the same kind of work, but kind of building from zero as far as, you know, getting like a reset and return room together. Um, I think I'm going to have a lot more time to like work with teachers also as far as regulating their nervous systems and helping to figure out like what's regulating to the kids in their classrooms. So I'm super excited about that. I love that. And I mentioned that for a couple of reasons. One, they're going to be educators that listen to this who feel like they're an island. Yeah, that's hard. And it is hard. And there's a couple of things to that. One, you're not alone. There's a, there's tens of thousands of people on this journey. Mm -hmm. It may not just be in your school, right? Right. We're part of a wonderful community, the Trauma-Informed Educators Network community. We've gone to several conferences where we've been able to connect and meet and know that there are other people out there. So that's one thing I would say, just know you're not alone. Two, if you feel alone in your school, continue to be the pioneer, mm-hmm. right? Talk yeah. about that. What's it like to be a pioneer doing this work when you feel alone? Because I imagine um, right. that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes there were days where I just felt like I was like the lone ship. Um, what's it like? Well, it feels lonely sometimes. Um, but on that how should I best describe this? Um, okay. So if the adults in your building are struggling, take a look at your students because mm-hmm. you there will be students who you use these strategies with that will start to respond. Mm-hmm. And if you're, the adults can't be your people, maybe your students can be your people. Mm-hmm. So that would be one thing. And then once the students start to respond, you can start to point that out to the adults and you're going to find one person. Like you're going to find at least one person who is curious and that's all they need to be. Yeah. They just need to start with the curiosity. Love that. And it only, you know, two people makes a meeting, right? And two people makes a committee, right? Yeah. It only takes two. So you're, you're such an educator, <laughs> right? Two. Yeah. That's all you gotta got. That's all you gotta have. Committees, committees. Everything happens in committees. I just think the power of modeling is super important. Yes, and so absolutely. We often say, "When you know better, you do better." Yes. And when you know this information about nervous system stuff, you can't unknow it. Right. Exactly. You can never unknow it. Exactly. And even, and then you have to, then you have to work to create that, that, that feeling of safety so that you can collaborate with each other. Like one, like I had folks in my building who were, they were at the level of curious and you would hear them talking with students. And so you would start to hear just little bits of like a, 
you know, a restorative conversation. You might just, you might just hear like one or two words and you're, okay, well, those are one or two words that they're using now that they weren't before. And then they'll start to show up at your door and they'll be like, oh, and sometimes they'll just come to talk. And that is what creates that level of safety. And then when they have something big that comes up, then you have that relationship and then you can kind of problem solve that and work work that out together. I had a couple of folks in my building that, oh man, they were working really hard. I mean, and over the years, they just learned, you know, so much, but they'd still come and go, you know what, Meg, I have no idea what to do with this. And then, but then we would be able to, and I, sometimes I would say, well, I don't know either, but like, let's come up with first do no harm. Let's figure that out. Like, we're not going to do any more harm, but what can we do? Love that. And that's just it. I don't think you have to know everything to- No, you're never going to know everything. No, and these are humans. Humans show up with all sorts of wild and crazy stories. Right, which is, you know, one of those systematic pieces that we're not great at in public public education is thinking about each student individually. We very, very much want them all to learn to read from the one curriculum. Like, wouldn't just how much easier that would be, Ooh. you know, if I just gave everybody the same curriculum and we taught it and they learned it. Yeah. Well, and that brings me to where we're at right now. I mean, part of the reason for doing this series is I know a lot of humans who are all speaking the same language Mm -hmm. and you all deliver it differently. Yes. And we need everyone using their voice, right? Every single person adds value to this conversation Mm -hmm. and we do it in different ways. I know you and I come from rural-ish areas. We do. And we have colleagues in very urban cities Mm -hmm. and we see the world very differently and very similarly. Yes. All are important. And so I so appreciate your time today. Do you have any thoughts you want to leave our audience? Um, it's okay if you don't, but I wanted to just give you the opportunity if you do. I would just reiterate that piece of if you have, start to be curious. If, mm-hmm. if you have to start somewhere, just start with curiosity and, um, you know, do some poking around and see if you can grab, you can find one thing that you're super curious about and then just go from there. Start with curiosity. Love it. I often tell most of the people in my life, curiosity is one of the best strategies you can have. Curiosity mm-hmm. in any relationship, in your marriage, in your relationship with your children, with educators and students, like curiosity is huge. And if we come from a curious place, then we usually land where we need to. So how do people find you, Meg? Um, yeah, so you can find me on social media. You can find me on Facebook. So I'm, um, my personal page is just Megan Baldwin and my, uh, group is Heartland B-A-V-X-L-L-C. You can find me there. Um, you can also find the web, my website, which is www.heartlandbavx.com. And from there, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter or uh, email. Email is good. Um, text message. I will also often answer a phone call. So do not leave her a note. Give her. Yeah, a note. please don't leave anything. on. Well, OK, if you want to send snail mail, that's fine. But like, don't leave me stuff sticking in places. But I'm just, and especially if you're going to leave it there, make sure I know who left it. Oh my gosh. I love this so much. Thank you for your time today. You know, I you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was fun.
Yeah, I deeply appreciate your time. I love, love, love you so much. I'm so excited for what the universe is bringing to you. Mm-hmm. Me too. And your gifts. I'm just glad I get to share your gifts because they're really important, Megan. So thanks for your time. You're welcome. Bye.